Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey there, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. Julie here. Robert is out this week with his son who has undergone surgery and is doing well. So, we decided to present a classic episode, The Werewolf Principle, in which we discuss the ideal astronaut and how we can tinker with our humanness to adapt ourselves to space. Latest will be discussed, a positive attitude, of course, not to mention becoming a cyborg. Uh, Julie, there is a, a book I read a little while back, and it's uh, referenced in the title of this podcast, um, The Werewolf Principle by uh, Clifford D. Simic. And uh, it, it, I found it really interesting. It's not, uh, perhaps not Simic's best work, uh, he's, and he's probably best known for uh, a, a book called City, which won a uh, Hugo Award. Mm-hmm. But uh, it's kind of like uh, they came up to, to, to Clifford, uh, you know, a really established uh, sci-fi dude, and they said, hey, we want you to write um, a, a novel about werewolves from space. And then he set out and, like, wrote the most intelligent, interesting uh, take on that concept possible. Of course. See, instead of it just being werewolves landing and running around howling at things, um, it involved a guy. Howling that, at the moon. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, which gets into the the interesting argument uh, that I've always wondered. It's like, what if you, what would happen if a werewolf landed on the moon? Would they be a, were- a wolf all the time? Would they be affected by what the Earth was doing? Would they be howling all the time? Yeah, yeah. Hmm. Interesting. But uh, but but Cl- Clifford uh, Simic's uh, whole take was that he decided to make this a person who had been engineered. Uh, to adapt to different environments and sent off into space. So he goes to, if he were to land on Mars, his body would rapidly uh, change so that he could, you know, live on Mars, right. um, et cetera. And anyway, he's returned to Earth, and he's he keeps changing into these previous forms. Uh, and that's the, the base. There's also something really like uh, like humans live in houses that can fly around, and they're, um, and they're brownies, like little um, creatures that live in the woods. So is isn't he like two hundred years old or something by the time he returns? Yeah, yeah, I, I believe so. That's right. yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. So he's got a he's got a lot of living. Yeah, but it's uh, it's such it's a forming. <laughs> but at, at heart, it's such a fascinating concept because yeah. uh, we we're, we still talk about terraforming a lot. We talk about, I mean, the, the, one of the basic models of space flight is let's take a little bubble of our environment and let's uh, blast it up into into orbit uh, because we are ultimately we're creatures that can that are that have evolved to live uh, only in a very uh, small region of our own atmosphere. Right. Just a small portion of, uh, of the Earth's crust, because the, the crust also, in uh, some definitions, includes the, uh, the atmosphere. So, so we're only uh, really supposed to live in this one little section, but we keep pushing the boundaries. You know, we want to climb Mount Everest. We want to, to, to live in space. And then we want to uh, have our little environment when we're in orbit. We want to turn uh, Mars into Arizona. Uh, you right. Know, and... Uh, and 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 you see these fantastic science fiction visions um, where we've gone out and done that to all these different worlds where we we just find you know exoplanet after exoplanet, change it into into Florida, change it into uh, you know vacationville. Right, right. Um, we're looking at you, Richard Branson. Yeah. <laughs> but and then you think, okay, well, I mean, fish—they're not doing this. They're not saying, "Wow, I wish I could live on land." Right. I didn't have these gills. Right. You know, how do I come up with some sort of lung situation here? Right. They yeah. They ended up uh, evolving, adapting over time, and uh, and reaching the point where they uh, where something could not return to the water. Right. Uh, and and so you you run into this interesting argument of what should we be doing to evolve to our setting as, and, and, as opposed to uh, changing our setting to uh, 
to to uh, adhere to our demands. Right. And of course, the astronaut is like the the perfect specimen to look at this whole argument with, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of because they're not very ideal in terms of of trying to actually explore space. Right. And nothing the, against them. Yeah. Start humanness getting well, in the way. Well, that's actually a good place to start. Like what is the ideal astronaut given what we currently know about uh, you know, about about sending people into orbit? Yeah. Um one of the more interesting things is that you want somebody with ideal methane output. Of course. Yeah. And of course, for I think we all know what I'm talking I'm talking about farts, of course, in right. in space. And when you say ideal, I think you mean minimum. Minimum. Um, minimal. Yeah, because first of all, the methane is uh, it's flammable, so you don't want you have a closed environment. You don't want like a lot of gas going off in there and potentially catching on fire while guys are carrying off uh, uh, you know experiments, right? Uh, Etc. Plus, it's that whole psychological thing. If you're going to be stuck in a, a spacecraft for six months, you don't necessarily want to be gassing people out, right? Right. Right. There's a, a guy by the name of Edwin Murphy, and he did some uh, he conducted some research on this. Uh, and uh, it, this is this is really interesting. It was uh, it was uh, there's a whole chapter dealing with uh, with this topic in Mary Roach's um, uh, latest book um, uh, about Mars and uh, the space the space program. So Murphy used an experimental bean meal and he fed it to volunteers who had been rigged to a rectal catheter uh, to uh, and, and and to to measure how much gas was going out. Uh, and he was he was interested, you know, in the individual differences, uh, not just the the overall volume. Uh, but in you know the percentage of of methane right in the ga- in, in the the fl- the flattest uh, I believe is the the, the actual, flattest yeah, yes. technical term for it uh, because you, if you're writing a scientific t- you know um, um, discussion on something you don't want to just com- com- you know keep saying the farts right over, and over again fart doesn't cut it yeah insert cheese joke here yeah yeah <laughs> uh, so um, uh, but w- what he found w- was really interesting uh, he, he found out that uh, about half the population doesn't produce methane. Uh, in their, um, I thought that was incredible because it was something about like their their bacterial yeah. flora. Yeah, it's and it's great and it, it's important to note that methane itself is like a it, it, it's not it, it, methane doesn't stink. Okay, right. There are other things that work in one's digestion besides methane production. Um, so it's not something where you can where where these people are not creating uh, or. Uh, or you know, emanating or expressing, expressing flatus. Uh, though he did uh, apparently claim that one, he found one individual who was quote flatus free, which just sounds. Um, I just I don't I didn't even think that was possible. I mean, can you imagine? I mean, you could put that on your resume. Yeah, I mean, people would, or would they hate you? I don't know. I would kind of. <laughs> I would feel like like if someone if I was in a position to hire somebody, and they'd be like, oh, by the way, I'm flatus free. I'd be like, well, I'm not hiring you, jerk. You're going to sit around and just make us look bad. Yeah, yeah, you're uh, right. Yeah, we could never blame anything on you. No, yeah, yeah, I just can't. It, it, it would happen, and like the dude would just sit there all smug, like, and just it, w- it would be horrible. Yeah, <laughs> but you could always be an astronaut. Yes, yeah. being an astronaut would be great uh, yeah. because because there wouldn't be any concern with methane at all. Um, so Murphy's whole argument was, "Hey NASA, you need to focus on getting astronauts who have the proper um, uh, uh, flattest output." For space, you right. want you want people that are that are producing the less hostile flatus, and only those people. Right. Everybody else, you're you're out of the pool. Yeah. And then NASA was like, "No, nah, we're just going to not serve beans. That's right. Gonna be our no cabbage, answer. no yeah. broccoli. I think we're going to get the, the go the easier route." Yeah. <laughs> and and actually, this guy too. Um, 
if I understand this correctly from Mary Rich's book, he was like a flattest researcher. Like he was employed as a flattest researcher, yes. researcher and only a flattest researcher. This was his life work. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So you can, <laughs> you can imagine why he took it so seriously and, and, uh, didn't he even, uh, insert the re- rectal catheter? Yes. She actually talked about that, the rectal catheter. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's uh, we're, we're laughing, but it's uh, you know it, it's an imp- it's an important uh, area of study if you're talking about sending guys up and gals up into space in this yeah. little uh, tiny environment. Uh, but it's but this is also, it's also like one of the first like real mo- you know moments like which way are we going to go? Are we going to going to going to change our environment? Or are we going to change us? And this was a chance to not really change us, but to you know selectively choose. Right. Uh, and, and I mean, granted, there. There are, you know, minimal uh, requirements for for astronauts and and, uh, and members of any you know space program. Stuff like, uh, um, you know, uh, you know, eyesight, blood pressure, height. Um, you know, obviously they, they tend to go f- for people who have at least a bachelor's degree in some sort of science or right engineering or math, et cetera. Yeah. yeah. So. And and you have to have kind of a happy-go-lucky disposition, right? right? Yeah, and even like space tourism, most of the uh, models we're looking at, even the ones like uh, you know, even like uh, the Branson's whole uh, whole space tourism de- tourism deal, as as much as they're going to try and cater that to to, to make m- make it available to everybody, uh, the certain people are just not going to be eligible to go into space, right? So uh, people who have a fear of flying, right? <laughs> I think are going to be cut off the list. Yeah, but but this is a, a case where where NASA could. Could either have have uh, have said yes, we're going to go after the people who who have minimal uh, flatus, uh, you know, and are mm-hmm. methane producers, um, and they said no, we're going to change the the meal plan. So uh, it's so practical. Yeah. <laughs> so so other areas uh, that uh, that Mary Roach brings up, um, bone mass, of course, is a big deal. You're going to lose bone mass if uh, the more you're in a in a in a um, microgravity environment. Yeah, and actually, that I mean, it, the uh, stat that I saw on that was astronauts lose one to two percent of their bone mass for each month they spend in space. Right. That's, that's quite a bit. Yeah, and uh, and and but but the interesting thing is that uh, black women, for instance, are seven to twenty four percent denser. Uh, in their bones than uh, than than white or Asian women. Okay. And uh, of course, Mary didn't have the um, have the, the the data for men, just for the women. And I assume that's tied to osteoporosis uh, research. Uh, but but conceivably, um, uh, black men would also have better bone density than white or Asian men. Right. So uh, so it ends up creating an, an interesting argument there. Should we only be using um, uh, minimal flatus uh, black astronauts? Uh, you know why not? Why not? Yeah, yeah. they're, they're going to be more suited for space, uh, and and uh, you can take this even one step uh, farther, and that is that maybe they should all be deaf, because because um, you know if anybody's ever had motion sickness, be it on a boat, in the car, uh, etc. You know, it's you get kind of nauseous. Next thing you know, you're throwing up into the into the floorboard of the vehicle. Right, and it's an inner ear thing. I, right, I think yeah. People used to think it was tied to the stomach, but it's not. Yeah, it's tied to inner ear. And, uh, and, and uh, many people argue that it's kind of a mistake of evolution because vomiting, as, as much as we may hate it, uh, does serve a number of really key functions. You know, you eat something and it's bad, it's poisonous, you barf it up. Right. Start over. Um, uh, and, and actually, animals that don't vomit, I mean, that becomes a problem because it's, they eat something they shouldn't eat. I believe horses are like this. Uh, they eat something they shouldn't eat, they can't vomit it up. It's, it's, you know, there's more of a, uh, it becomes a real you know, problem when it yeah, comes to Yeah, a huge control. amount of discomfort. Right, yeah. Because like with kids, right? If a kid eats something they're not supposed to, uh, a child, not a goat. Uh, if a child eats something that uh, he or she is not supposed to, you can always, there's the vomiting, right? You can give right. them Epicac or something, right? 
Uh, and I'm, I'm thinking about this too. Like this is sort of an accident of nature, right? Because whatever controls our vomiting response uh, is near our inner ear mm-hmm. function or something yeah. along this. I'm sorry, I don't have the correct terminology, but I sort of scan that remembering. Ah, okay, so that's yeah. why we sometimes it, vomit because we're. It, yeah, but it serves sort of no evolutionary. Pro, pro, you know, there's no reason for it. It's like, oh, right. I'm feeling kind of motion sickness, and my body's like, we have to vomit now. Yeah, you know, there's confusion, no argu- confusion. Yeah, it serves no like evolutionary advantage. Yeah. Um, so uh, the only way to act completely get rid of uh, motion sickness is um, is for the human to have a non-functioning inner ear, and uh, so you would, would conceivably then go for deaf people. So all black deaf astronaut crew with uh, minimal flatus. All right. I mean, it yeah. could happen. I guess the problem is is that you just keep narrowing the pool. To the point where it's probably harder and harder to get astronauts, right? Unless you create, and this is, I'm throwing this out there as like a future kind of thing, and, and, and kind of a potentially scary eugenics kind of thing, but like you, then you create a breeding program, right? Just for astronauts. You know, okay. Just to encourage the traits. I mean, we do it, we've done it with dogs, and of course that has some horrible effects, uh, in many times, but conceivably, seems to me, you could, you could have a breeding program similar to the, you know, like something out of Dune, where you're just breeding for ideal astronauts. And you, and so it's like a genetic, uh, you know, hereditary thing. You create a, an entire caste or subspecies of astronauts. I know. And I, I, I'm just thinking now of, like, the Island of Misfits and uh, Rudolph <laughs> Red-Nosed Reindeer and the elf that wanted to be a dentist. Like, there might be that person that's bred to, you know, do this and goes, you know, I just I don't space. really yeah. want to go to space. But uh, thanks. Yeah. Yeah. But then you have to sit down with them and be like, like, but dude, listen, listen, like you, or don't listen, like read the words that I'm writing because you're deaf because we bred for that. Right. Uh, you know, it's like you're, you're deaf, you, your bone density is incredible, you're, you have no methane when you, when, when you break wind, like this is, this is for you. But they're like, no, I, I really, really want to be an artist. So what do you do? Yeah, right. Guess what? It's time to take a break. When we get back, we will talk more about the werewolf principle. So there's that that viewpoint. Like, what if we, so, you know, step one, we we only choose the people that are ideal for space, and then okay, we could take that a step farther. What if we we bred people for space? Uh, but then then the next step is what if we engineered people for space? What if we made them uh, adapt or made them better? We adapted them for uh, space into the cyborg. Yes. Yeah. Um, and like a simple version of it would be like if you just made people deaf before you send them into space, which is kind of horrifying. Right. But, uh, but yeah. I'm not sure a lot of people go for that. Yeah. They might. I don't know. But there are a number of uh, interesting changes that could that could take place that would be uh, uh, less scary, though some of them are pretty scary. Um, so let's look at the cyborg. Okay. Uh, now, the, this is a term that is pretty loaded these days because when, when, when I say cyborg, what do you think of? Well, I think of the Terminator, but right. I don't think he's technically... A cyborg. Yeah, he was more of a robot covered with with flesh. With flesh. Yeah. Um, Darth Vader. Yeah, I think Darth Vader was pretty cybernetic uh, in, in his state. Um, Robocop, perhaps a cyborg. Okay. I'm 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 kind of foggy on the explanations in the the first two movies, but uh, but yeah, you get this idea. It's like a human being that has been augmented terrifically uh, or terrifyingly with machines. Six million dollar man. Six million dollar man is a, is a prime example okay. of a cyborg. Yeah, uh, but but again, this is kind of a, a term that's been taken by by science fiction and and just sort of they run wild with it. So now you just think of like man with half metal face, right? Kind of thing. The term actually originates uh, back in uh, 1960, September of 1960, in 
uh, an edition of Astronautics, and this was an article by Manf- Manfred E. Kleins and Nathan S. Klein, uh, one with a C, the second with a K, and it was titled Cyborgs in Space. And it's a great read. I'll have to throw up a link to it on the um, the accompanying blog post when this podcast comes out. Um, but they uh, they made they just made he made they make the huge argument that uh, uh, like here's just a quote from it that really sums it up. In the past, evolution brought about the altering of bodily functions to suit different environments. Starting as of now, it will be possible to achieve this to some degree without alteration of heredity by suitable biochemical, physiological, and electronic modifications of man's existing uh, bodies. So. And so what I thought was kind of cool about this, too, is that it, it's not necessarily that, that they felt like they were changing humans, but that they were improving humans so that they could explore more and they could have more independence to, to create more and to think more. Right. If they, if they weren't um, burdened by their own physicality. Right. And, and you... And plenty of people make the argument that the cyborg has been around for ages. Right. Like the second that we skinned an animal and started wearing its fur, cyborg. Second, with the second we strapped a wristwatch to our to our arm, cyborg dentures. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. How are you going to chew? You you know, you throw the dentures in. You've augmented the uh, the individual with technology to better enable them for their environment. You've become something more than human. Right. And uh, and certainly we went into a number of uh, of, of these possibilities on the previous uh, um, uh, accessorizing podcast about right. uh, you know you, somebody can wear flippers. They're gonna they're gonna swim faster. Um, you know we. we Wearable computers, uh, our you know our i our iPhones. It's like there's there's so much technology. Eyeglasses, contacts, um, Lasix. These are all examples of of something where technology changes the person to better suit them for their environment. Mm-hmm. You may think of it as just your everyday life, but your everyday life is here on Earth. But what if the everyday life was in space? So Kleins and Klein took that, and then they they looked at all the problems facing us and and trying to exist in space or explore space. And I thought that the um, Solutions they came up with were incredible. I mean, they're they're yes. really creative and they're really interesting ways to to approach the problem. Yes. And I have to tell you though, to like reading this, I thought, God, this is this is so crazy. Like, this is the Mad Men era. Can you imagine them like sitting <laughs> in a cocktail party saying, "Well, I've got an idea about this whole problem of the lungs in space." Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> or, I mean, it, it reminds me a little bit, uh, in Mary Roach's book, she talks about like when you would have scientists, uh, sci- the scientists that designed uh, space travel and the jock astronauts that would do it, yeah. like sitting in the same room. And the um, and, and she pointed out how the, the scientists would be like, you know, we could develop a way for, the, for them to actually eat parts of the ship on the return trip from Mars, and maybe there's a way we can make it to where they can eat, um, eat poo or something. You know, it's like they were actually beginning to think along those lines, and the, the, the astronauts were like, no, 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 we're, we're not doing that. That's, right. Be, because it's something about, like, the scientific mindset. When you really get into it from a, just a, a pure, purely logical, problem-solving, uh, you know, uh, frame of mind, right? So, so there's a hint of that, well, more than a hint of that, in this uh, in, in their original article, because it's some of the the possibilities are a little, uh, uh, you know, they, they make you shake your head a little, but uh, but but they're but but the logic of it is 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 interesting, and, right? And so inventive, sound. yeah. For instance, they pointed out that we could have uh, osmotic pressure pump capsules uh, and sensing uh, and controlling mechanisms in our bodies, like right. implanted. To uh, give us uh, medications for blood pressure, to give us basically speed if we need to, to, to stay awake, um, which you know they, they have various medications uh, on space 
uh, any kind of a, a, a space mission uh, these days, but you generally have to pop the pills yourself. Right. But what if it was an automatic thing? And that's one of the, the huge key uh, you know, aspects of uh, of what was basically Cyborg 1, uh, as outlined in this uh, proposal, and that was that we were taking these different things and turning them over to subconscious functions. So, so we're automating these. Right, yeah. So it wouldn't be like, like, ooh, I'm getting a little sleepy and I've got a, a high-pressure job ahead of me. I better, uh, you know, pop some of this, uh, n- this NASA speed. Uh, no, you would just, it would just kick in. Um, so there's all these sensors uh, that are taking the data and recalibrating your body based right. on that. Yeah, and, and other things, too, in this uh, situation would be like anti-radiation uh, uh, medications, uh, pituitary drugs to help induce hibernation. That was a, a, a big key, too, because yeah. you get into the issue of how are you going to you know, worry about sending people on long space voyages where... You know they're going to be uh, they're going to be setting around doing nothing for you know years. What if you could you, we could learn something from bears? Uh, well, bears don't technically hibernate, if I remember correctly. It's a different. Well, I think that they are interested in bears. It's, it's uh, something that when they hibernate, they're actually redistributing the calcium back to their bones, right, or something nuts yeah. like that. That which they thought, well, if we could just replicate that in humans, that'd be great. Yeah, yeah, because bears are sitting around doing nothing for uh, for the period of their. Uh, of, of their their winter nap time, right. but they're not uh, they're not losing uh, bone and their uh, bone density uh, right. and their their muscles. They can still walk at the end of it. Right. If a human laid in bed for uh, X number of months, he, uh, he or she would not necessarily be able to move when right. they got it, when they woke up. And the crux of the problem too is that yeah, you can you you might have muscle atrophy, atrophy but you can get your muscles back afterward, right? Mm-hmm. And you'll have some bone loss, but you may not be able to recoup actually all of the the bone density that you lost. Right. In particular. The, um, the area in your hips. So if you're an astronaut and you reach retirement age, then it's not a great scenario for you because that's like the number one thing that happens to people in yeah. their older years is that they fall and break their hips. So it's actually like a real problem for yeah, them. Yeah, yeah, totally. Uh, here are a few other things from the uh, the Cyborg paper. Uh, they suggested replacing the lung with an inverse fuel cell, um, uh, altering your... Um, Intestinal plumbing, so that uh, I love this yeah, one. wastewater goes through a filter and right back into your blood. <laughs> which, yeah. which this is one of those where you, you can just imagine it coming up in, a, in the Mad Men era, where it's like you know we're wasting a lot of water when we go to the bathroom. I think we can we can probably pump that through a filter right back into the bloodstream. Yes, <laughs> yes. And to your point too about uh, redistributing the the poo, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a quote from the paper that says, sterilization of the gastrointestinal tract plus intravenous or direct intragastric feeding could reduce fecal elimination to a minimum, and even this might be reutilized. So, yes, yeah. to your point, they're absolutely thinking about this, eating your own well, defecation. Well, it, well, that's kind of the, you're putting the dark spin on it. Do it put yeah, the light spin on it, minimizing, and hey, you know, I'm a dreamer, one day eliminating uh, pooping. Just completely get rid Altogether. of it. Yeah. Wow. What a world we would live in. Huh. Um, so, I mean, that would most assuredly be the death knell for the newspaper industry right there. <laughs> um, the, um, uh, of course, the, the, the whole idea of like uh, of uh, recycling, uh, like urine. Of course, we're already doing that uh, in space. Right. We we have uh, water filtration systems, and uh, and 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 of course everybody has the the idea of the the still suit from uh, from the dune novels you know the idea that you could pee in the suit and it would turn back into water so right. um so some of the ideas are like i i would not be opposed to wearing a still suit to you know or or to or if someone said hey this this water was pee an hour ago i'd be like well you know 
a lot of water was pee at some point, so it's not a big deal. But the whole idea of like, we're now going to re- reroute your uh, intestinal system so that uh, the wastewater goes back into your bloodstream. It's a little more extreme. Right. But it's an interesting solution. Um, let's see a few other ones here. Uh, enzyme tinkering to create uh, uh, anaerobic organisms. Uh, in other words, astronauts that don't require air or can live in different atmospheres. So that's some extreme makeover right there. Yeah, and for, for those types of uh, solutions, I can't help but think, like, how do you recircuit the, the autonomous part of your body, like your lungs that want to breathe? Like, mm-hmm. And I do. I think that all of their uh, solutions are really fascinating. But th- that to me, those are the sticking points. Yeah. Like, that. well, the humanness part of our body that wants to do this, how do you shut that off? Um, they uh, To go back to the inner ear thing and, uh, and uh, getting a little motion sick and weightlessness, yeah. they proposed either draining ear fluid or... Or filling them up. So there you go. Um, they said uh, electric uh, slash drug cardiovascular control. They uh, recommended drugs to prevent uh, muscle atrophy, which sounds perfectly reasonable. Right. Except in their um, in in their argument, it would probably uh, just happen on its own through something implanted in you. Uh, which I guess you'd have to get like a refill pack. You'd be kind of like a printer, I'm thinking, on your back <laughs> where you have like the cyan and the magenta and all this. And yeah. You'd suddenly you'd get like a little light would show up and it's like, oh, I'm running low on uh, anti-radiation medicine. Or yeah, better. yeah. Yeah. And I wonder if there'd be one that would run out uh, the fastest, you know, because it seems like we're always having to replace cyan. I don't know. It's true. Why is that? Yeah. It's a weird color. But uh, they also recommended lowering body pressure to facilitate uh, better facilitate spacewalks. Okay. Perhaps naked spacewalks. I'm thinking, like, like basically they're saying we could, we would we would just remove some of the necessary um, functions of the spacesuit. So that's uh, that's pretty wild. They also um, talked about engineering um, humans to have a a, a light sensitive, chemically regulated system that would uh, change their uh, reflectivity. In, in other words. You wear a bl- you know you wear a black shirt on yeah. a bright day. You end up uh, being Absorbing, hotter. You absorb right. more of that heat. You wear a white shirt, reflects. So in space, you can have situations where uh, the, where you need the heat or don't need the heat because it can make a difference between cooking and freezing. Is this the protective plastic sponge clothing they were talking about? Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Which sounded I don't know. <laughs> um, sounded like I don't know something in my attic. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, they also brought up uh, anti, basically anti-space madness medications. Yeah. Uh, anti-psychosis medications, because you're going to be up there for a while in this cramped space. You don't want uh, your fellow astronauts going crazy. Yeah. So. Yeah, actually, and I noticed that that drugs were a huge um, part of the solution here for a lot of this stuff. Yeah. Uh, which makes sense at the time, but I guess uh, not knowing as much about the side effects now. Well, well, the, the thing is they keep the, a lot of these type medications on the spaceship. Yeah. Um, I have a blog post on this, which I'll also uh, link to uh, when I get around to doing the uh, the accompanying blog post for this. But but there are a number of different uh, medications that they keep on, on the shuttle. So it's not, not just the idea of using them, but mm-hmm. having them where they kick in automatically, where it's like you start feeling a little crazy and then... Your uh, your the system that's implanted in your side right. like checks you, you know. So you only feel crazy for a second. Uh, Gosh, I need that now. <laughs> oh, it's interesting. This, uh, if I remember correctly, uh, this uh, features into Ian M. Banks' culture series, where you have the humans have been augmented over time, so everybody has like all these systems that are either subconsciously or consciously control, so they can they can feel less psychotic or or you know or crank up their. Uh, their sort of caffeine level without actually, um, you know, having something to drink. Uh, it's just actually made me 
uh, think about this book that I just read, Super Sad True Love Story. I believe is the title. Oh. And they, they talk about, um, everybody has something called an apparatus, which is, they wear around their neck. Mm-hmm. And it basically will tell you every bit of data about yourself, will communicate it to another person. So you could feasibly see what my cholesterol level is. Uh-huh. And, you know, whether or not I need to adjust that. Or if I even have like little nano robots going through my blood, like cleaning things up. Huh. Um, as well as my credit score. <laughs> it's good stuff. But it just reminded me of that. Um. They also uh, talked about prol- using uh, pharmaceuticals to um, to uh, have uh, to kick in some prolonged sleep if you get injured. Like their whole deal is like you're on your uh, return trip from Mars and you uh, I don't know you step a toe really badly or more likely you're injured on a spacewalk, uh, etc. You might need to just be able to put that person under for the ride home. It might maybe a condition that can't be tr- or an injury that can't be treated uh, reasonably on the ship. That was another hallmark, yeah, putting yeah. people under. And um, so, yeah, those are some of the key arguments that they made. Um, from there, they went on to do a number of other cyborg uh, studies where each one uh, dealt with another level. Like uh, Cyborg 2 uh, dealt with the manipulation of human emotions through mental exercises. Um, and and this, this one involved like a lot of hypnosis, like, uh, like the idea of using, uh, using hypnosis. to And, uh, and I, I could see like, like meditation being a big thing, too. Yeah, they mentioned yoga, too, yeah. in the paper. Yoga in space. Can you do well? Here, you you uh, have done more yoga than me. Could you do yoga without uh, gravity? Yeah, I assume you could do some of the poses, yeah. right? Um, I well, mean, n- never having done it, yeah. it <laughs> in a uh, gravity-free environment, I'm not quite sure, but yeah. Well, like I mean, I don't know. It seems like the different balancing poses would be kind of pointless, and like down dog. I don't know. I think does down dog even count if there's no gravity? No, it doesn't. You're right. I mean, I think you'd have to have your compression suit on. And perhaps you'd have to do like partner yoga with one person oh. uh, holding you down. This would be interesting if if anybody out there has any thoughts on what a microgravity yoga technique would consist of. Right. I'll have to ask my yoga teacher. Um, so there's yeah, that level. <laughs> I, oh, maybe I will. I, uh, no, I will do it. Okay. Um, maybe. All right. So then uh, Cyborg 3 was genetic alterations to enhance uh, the human emotional range. Uh, Cyborg 4, deeper genetic changes. And then uh, Cyborg 5, ultimately, they were talking about the separation of mind from body, um, in, which, uh, you know, it's, it's the idea is like perhaps instead of sending uh, humans to this hostile environment, you fall back on the, the human creation that is best suited for space travel, the machine. Right. If we could just simply put our consciousness in it or somehow experience what the machine is experiencing, uh, you know, remotely. We could have some sort of implant that tied into the... yeah. Robots or yeah, like yeah. It, more or less an extension of what we're already doing. We, right. We we just more data. Yeah, we talked a big game, uh, you know, about sending humans to Mars, but ultimately we can send robots there, and uh, we can you know move our hands on a, on a keyboard and move things on Mars. We can we can look through a screen and see what's happening on Mars, uh, and as that technology improves. I mean, it's it's basically like we're there, and uh, without having to worry about how you're going to feed this person, how are you going to keep them alive, how are you going to, you know, tackle the, uh, the the huge obstacles of engineering a person that can survive this environment. That makes sense to me. I mean, to to do the sort of uh, surveillance that you need, right? To to have nanorobots or just robots mm-hmm. go out and accumulate all that data. The thing that I think about is what what's missing there is um, like the overview effect, uh-huh. right? The the reporting back of the the 
the human part of it. Yeah. So yes, the, the, we've talked about this before in a podcast about the overview effect, that sense of euphoria you get and this deeper, better understanding of the planet that you live in. Yeah. Like it, it, the Grand Canyon example is, is great. Like I've never been to the Grand Canyon, but I've only seen photos of it. It looks really cool in the photos, but everyone will tell you that's been there that the photos just don't cut it, that you don't really like understand the Grand Canyon until you see it. Right. Which, which I totally buy because I mean, that's, that's how seeing anything you know, amazing works. It's like the, the the photo, the the video. It can really capture a moment or a string of moments, but it's it's not the same as being there. It, yeah, mm. yeah. But then you know, I don't know. I think about that. Yes, robots makes so much more sense. But yeah, you know, I seems like I've been bringing this up a lot. But like the exoskeletons we talked about, the, mil- the military is using. You know, is there a way to combine that technology as well as the uh, carbon nanotube muscles mm-hmm. that they're trying to create to, to glom that onto the human to, to again, make them more of this um, this cyborg in reality yeah. as opposed to the, the, the future that we keep pointing to? Yeah. So one of the big questions that comes to mind when we talk about all these different uh, variations on the cyborg is, is that if we change humans to live in space or live in another world at what point are they no longer human you know like what you know you you get to where you're adding a lot of hardware you're genetically altering somebody and then you're sending them out and is is that a human being anymore is it something else is it a subspecies i don't know paul davies of SETI Mm -hmm. um, has actually said that biological intelligence is only a transitory phenomenon a fleeting phase in the evolution of the universe. Mm-hmm. And so his feeling is that this applies to humans, and, and if there are indeed an, uh, extraterrestri- extraterrestrial life out there, that it's uh, it's got to be some sort of machine hybrid. Hmm. So and, and this is an idea that's come up before, is aliens is it's these more evolved uh, replications or iterations of ourselves that are this sort of machine cyborg being. Yeah. And uh, and and it falls back in line with what we were talking about earlier. Like it comes to, like the like the, the like say Cyborg Five was talking about uh, like basically machines with human uh, intellects. You know, it's, mm-hmm. uh, it becomes more of a. I mean, just, again, just look at what we've sent out. We've sent machines. Machines have been the the, the first to land on, uh, on 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 Mars, on on the Moon. The first going to be the first to leave the solar system. So so is the definition then if the brain is intact, then we're still human. But well. I think we would kind of like that to be the case, but again, we're not just our brains. It's like we're, you know, we're we're a much more complicated system than that. That's right. To yeah. bring up the gut. Yeah. So anyway, it's an interesting question. Yeah, at what point? At what point do, do have? At what point would we not be human anymore? At what point are we already not human? Um, this was, there's a 1997 stat that, uh, and this is 97, <laughs> which uh, which argued that. Uh, that 10% of the human population was already a cyborg, just counting like everything from, uh, you know, pacemakers uh, to prosthetics to dentures, that there was just a huge, huge popula- uh, segment of the population that was already not fully human. Right. And, and certainly, I mean, uh, if you start counting clothing, like none of us are, except for those, those few nudists out there, they're keeping it real for the, for the uh, original humans. We salute you. Hey guys, thanks for listening in. If you'd like to check out more from us, make sure to visit StuffToBlowYourMind.com. Hang with us on Facebook, Tumblr, and Twitter, and send us your episode suggestions at BlowTheMindAtDiscovery.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 